Stripping Down Science. The Naked Scientists. Hello, welcome to this week's Naked Scientists question and answer programme with me, Chris Smith, and also with Phil Rosenberg, who's here this week. Hi, Phil. Hi, Chris. Now, on the way, good news for anyone who's itchy, because scientists have uncovered the chemical pathway that tells us when something needs a very good scratch. Also, how shellfish could be helping astronauts to get better in outer space in the future. And also, the world's 10th biggest wind farm. Beijing is trying to clean up its act in time for the next year's Olympics, and we'll be telling you what they've got in mind. Phil. Also this week, we're looking at how goats can help prevent poisoning by nerve gas, a clean way to get energy from coal, and why we're having such a terrible summer. Weatherman John Law will be joining us to explain the recent spate of floods and freezing cold days. And uh, also, in this week's Question of the Week, we're going to be looking at this rather interesting conundrum. What would happen to human civilization if the Earth's magnetic poles flipped tomorrow? Well, what do you think? Would there be chaos if the magnetic field suddenly reversed? The answer to that is on the way. Plus, we've got kitchen science. We'll be showing you how you can make your very own lens. Just grab a plastic drinking bottle and a pair of scissors, and we'll tell you what to do with them in the nicest possible way in just a second if you'd like to have a go. And don't forget, it's our science phone-in show, so you can get in touch with any question you like, and we'll do our best to answer it for you. The Naked Scientist Podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.net. Now, Phil, are you feeling itchy? Well, I like a bit of scratch every now and again, but yeah, not, not like right s- now at the moment. It's kind of like sneezing, isn't it? When, when, and coughing and yawning and things. As soon as one person does it, everyone feels that urge either to clear their throat or have a scratch or have a yawn. But itching seems to be quite a special phenomenon. And for a long time, scientists have been trying to work out, you know, why do we itch? Well, actually, is an itch. Why do we scratch? Why is it so pleasurable? And for a while, there's been kind of the idea there might be some itch-specific nerve cells in the body. They just tell the brain when you're itchy. Okay. And now a group of scientists who are based at Washington University in St. Louis have found them. Oh, they actually exist then? Uh, yes, it's uh, Yang Gang Sun and Zhu Fen Cheng, who are at, in, in Washington, St. Louis, have found this population of nerve cells. They innovate or supply the skin across the entire body surface. And each nerve supplies one little patch of skin. And when that patch of skin gets an itch on it, this nerve cell fires off. They have discovered that the nerve cell, when it wants to tell the brain that there's an itch there, squirts out a a transmitter substance, which is called GRP, which is gastrin-releasing peptide. That's just the nerve transmitter chemical that comes out. And the spinal cord cells have a receptor, a chemical docking station, which is GRPR, gastrin-releasing peptide receptor. And when the two come together, the chemical and the docking station, the brain says, aha, this patch of skin itches. And they've found that if they knock the gene that makes that receptor out from mice and then give the mice something to make them itch, the mice itch very, very little. So it suggests that this is the pathway by which you can sense itching. Now, the really good news is that because people have already looked at this, this GRP substance, because in the past it's been implicated in the way in which tumours grow... Doctors have already made a number of drugs that can block it and stop it binding to things. So they reckon that uh, if they give these drugs to mice and in people, it'll stop itching. And this means we might have a very powerful anti-itch drug, which would be really useful for people with things like eczema who have chronically itchy skin. Yeah, absolutely. That sounds really good. But of course, itching is a useful thing as well, isn't it? I mean, you have to itch for a reason. So yes, it's, it's a protective thing. And lots of people say, why do we bother with itching? But it, it's to draw your attention to something being wrong on the surface of the body. So you pay attention to it. And if it's a biting insect or something or a parasite, you could flick it off. Or if it's an area that's getting irritated for some other reason, it draws your attention to the fact that something's wrong. So it does have an important function, but at the same time, it can have a destructive function. If you itch so much, you actually draw blood or something. Absolutely. Yeah, sounds quite nasty. No cure for the seven-year itch either, Phil. 
Okay, well, now I'm going to look a little bit further up, uh, but also actually looking at medical applications, but for astronauts this time. Um, American astronauts actually intend now to take up a chemical on the space shuttle uh, that's found in shells of shrimps. That actually may help with healing in the case of an accident on some sort of long-duration space mission. Um, Now, unfortunately, actually, human bodies are pretty poorly adapted at, at working in space. Um, we, we lose muscle, we lose bone when we're up in space, when we're weightless. But actually it affects the healing ability of the human as well. In, when we're weightless in space, we actually can't heal as well as we normally can. Why, why do you think that might be? Uh, I, I have no idea. It's actually some sort of effect within the immune system. Uh, and to be honest, there's a lot of things we don't understand about weightlessness and how the body is affected by weightlessness. So uh, when you say you don't heal as well, if you have a scratch or a laceration on the skin, it, it takes longer it takes to longer get to better heal. in space? Absolutely. But one problem that they're finding is that bacteria don't have this problem. So it's really easy, if you cut yourself, to actually get an infected wound. Uh, actually, the mere Russian space station that was released back into orbit, or back into the, onto the Earth's surface quite a number of years back now, actually had colonies of bacteria growing in it that were actually causing astronauts to get ill. That's how, how much the bacteria were loving it. So and the what did they weren't. do about this? Did they used to put everyone who was in space on lots of antibiotics all the time to stop it? Well, it, it was difficult. I mean, that sounds something that would be, would be used to treat this sort of thing. Now, what they're actually looking at now is this natural chemical called chitin that they're finding in that you find in, in shellfish uh, and also in insect shells. Yeah, wood lice and things use it as their hard outer carapace. Absolutely, they? yeah. And uh, basically, this this stuff that you can actually now make it soluble in water and soak bandages in it. And actually, Americans have been using this in um, in bandages that they use for the military for for some some time now. So, what's the advantage apart from giving you a skin like a woodlouse? Well, basically, the way this this stuff works is it promotes healing in a sense, uh, and it actually can help to kill and, and stop bacteria. It has a, a charge on the surface which attracts the bacteria, the membrane of the bacteria, which basically stops them reproducing or kills them. So, it's like a natural antibacterial agent, and it really does help in that sense. There's also some possible evidence that it could help stop swelling and help reduce scarring as well so this uh, research is now going to go on in space could actually be really helpful back on earth to help who's going to volunteer to have a, a laceration just to see if the chitin does it? i mean what are you going to do sever both arms and then stick some <laughs> bandages on one and not on the other and see if you heal up faster on one side than the other nothing quite so severe actually they're going to take up solutions made up of this chitin and also bacterial fragments and also human white blood cells and take some up on the shuttle and keep some down on Earth and compare the two when they, when they get back to see what the difference is up in space compared to down here on Earth. So it's not quite a, a, a sort of clinical trial level yet? Not, not quite, but it's getting there, you know. These things are making progress and it could really help because if uh, astronauts go off on long-duration missions, say if we go to Mars in the next couple of decades, it's going to be an 18-month round trip and there's no chance, you know, you can phone your local GP for a call out if you're halfway to Mars. So hopefully be a positive progress. Well, quite important is a piece of news that came out this week, which is looking at the relationship between why when there's bad pollution on Earth, you get very bad levels of heart attacks and strokes and things. And why it is that people who live in polluted environments tend to have more heart disease and strokes than people who live in the countryside. Why is, why is that? And a group of researchers at the University of California at Los Angeles have done some interesting experiments where they took the cells that line blood vessels, these are called endothelial cells, and they incubated them with, with phospholipids. These are the 
part of LDL, the bad cholesterol that we know causes heart disease. Plus, they added some exhaust fumes, the particles you get from a diesel engine, for example, and they incubated them together. And then they analysed the cells genetically to see which patterns of genes were coming on and off. Okay. And what they found were every time they did this, they got three consistent sort of genetic fingerprints, patterns of genes that were going on and off in these cell cultures. So then they did the sort of gold standard study and exposed mice that had the human, the, the rodent equivalent, a human high cholesterol. So they were predestined to get heart disease. Yep. They also exposed these mice to the air pollutants and they got exactly the same patterns of genes turning on and off in the mice. Okay. And what these genes do is, is control inflammation in the walls of blood vessels. So this shows that we now have a clue as to what causes the relationship between bad air, having a bad air day, and having high blood pressure, heart attacks and strokes. So they said that it inflames the blood vessels by this mechanism. Yeah, and the chronic inflammation then leads to cells growing and moving in and blocking the walls of blood vessels by making a big lump in the wall of the blood vessel. Okay, fantastic. Okay, a little more technology now for us. Uh, super paper. Apparently it's as tough as steel, but more flexible than ordinary carbon fibre. And even better, it's actually dirt cheap to make as well. This is scientists at Northwest University, Illinois. They've created this super paper, and it's made of carbon. It's a bit like carbon fibre. Uh, and carbon's always been known as a fantastic, tough material. Does it make good loo paper? Uh, I haven't checked. <laughs> But it, it's flexible enough. I can't imagine it's quite as good as your Andrex-type tissue paper. I wonder if they... Is it as good as a Labrador puppy? <laughs> Who knows? But, but what, what are they going to do with this paper? Why do you need paper that's the toughest substance known to man? Well, I mean, when you can create these sort of coatings, these thin thin layers of, of material, like carbon fibre, you can make incredibly lightweight, incredibly strong structures. This would help save fuel if you're using it in, for example, a plane... Or if you're using it in spacecraft, for example, you know you need to make things as lightweight as possible. So, like so a skin. Launch stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, they're looking at possible applications, you know, using uh, as a surface coating, as a protective layer, or something along those lines. Now, the only problem is at the moment the way they make this stuff is they dunk some graphene oxide into paper and suck it up with a filter, and the graphene oxide particles stick to the filter and create this paper layer. But when you put it, expose it back again to water, all the it all starts to break down again. So they've got this problem that you know water's obviously very uh, you know, abundant substance on the earth in water droplets in the rain or in humidity in the atmosphere and it, it caused this stuff to break down so now they're looking at ways to uh, try and form this stuff without using water in the first place it. and get it so stable it's very so. good for what about space travel then where space is very dry you could use it is it's very strong in the skin of spacecraft absolutely I mean it could be something that's use, useful for for example protection against micrometeorites something like that in space protection against impacts by other bodies Cause but you know yeah, because yep. people are looking at, at ways to make layers uh, that for spacecraft and things that self-heal, don't they? Because being struck by objects in space is a major problem for anything like satellites and space stations. Absolutely, and we've seen that most recently with the Chinese have actually destroyed some American satellites also uh, that have been up there. Uh, and now the debris from those are going on to wreak havoc and actually damage other spacecraft. So they blew up some of their own? Or one of their oh, own. Oh, sorry, they, they blew up one of their own, and now it's going on yeah. to cascade and, and damage other satellites from so across the world. So all the bits are pinging around like a giant pinball in space. Absolutely. We're talking to the Chinese. Uh, just to finish off, Beijing uh, is going to host next year's Olympic Games, of course, and they're a bit worried because the air quality in Beijing is absolutely terrible. In 2004, the records showed that even by Chinese standards, air was breathable and fit for humans 
on 282 days of the year only. Mm. Now, that's Chinese standards. I don't know how that compares with EU standards, but I bet it's not good. And at the time, the Chinese said they were going to plant some roof gardens to try and combat the problem. So they were planting this really hard grass, which, which grows in really... I uh, guess grass is in the stuff you mow with a lawnmower, not the yep. cannabis variety. And it's, <laughs> it grows on the roof. It tolerates very dry, very wet, and very hot and cold conditions. So okay, it's a sort of perfect. very, very good material. makes these very thin stems, and the idea was wind would blow across it and drop particles into it. So it would be like a giant filter paper on top of all the okay. buildings. Well, that was four years ago. Now they've moved a few industries around. They're trying to combat the fact that traffic's going up by 15% every year in Beijing. So it's a huge problem. Now they've said, let's get rid of some of the coal-fired power stations, and they're going to build the world's 10th largest wind farm on the okay. outskirts of Beijing. 33 massive turbines, 100, 100 million kilowatt hours of output which is quite a lot of energy. That's on an annual basis. And they say that will save 10 million tonnes of carbon dioxide every single year. And it's going to come in at a cost of something like £50 million. So it's okay. actually not a huge investment for, for quite a big sales. And, and why I'm impressed is that China has this bad reputation for being a kind of big, nasty pollution machine. But in fact, I think they are quite conscious about the environment. And, yeah. and this kind of says that they are quite worried about the fact that they need to do something other than just build more coal-fired power stations. They've obviously got a huge population that they need to supply with power. So if they can make steps in that, that direction, then that's fantastic. Excellent. Thanks for words to the Naked Scientists. And if you have any science questions, it's our science Q&A show this week, then you can send them to us now. On the way, we'll be finding out why we're having such freaky weather, because John Law will be joining us from WeatherQuest, and he'll be telling us why we've had all this rain and why we're having so much cold weather, not just in this country, but other, other countries worldwide are getting freaky weather too. Plus, Mark Peplow is coming from Chemistry World. He'll be explaining how goats can combat nerve gas poisoning and also how to get energy from coal much more cleanly. The Naked Scientists, supported by the Wellcome Trust. Now, Anne's on the phone. Hello, Anne. Hello. What can we do for you? Um, I'd like to know if it's possible to have sinus problems without the pain around the nose and eyes. Tell us a little bit more about what you mean. Well, I didn't have a cold for about five years, and then when I had a cold last, it left me with a cough which has stayed with me, but it only affects me when I'm laying horizontally. Mm-hmm. And it seems to be congestion at the back of the nose and throat. Mm. But I don't have a sore throat and I don't have any pain around the nose and eyes. I do have earache from time to time. Yeah, how, how long did you say it's been going on for? About five years now. OK, have you had it checked out by somebody? I'm waiting to see the ENT department. Yeah, I think that's probably your best bet, because... You, normally, when you get a cold, the reason that you get lots of mucus in the nose is because most colds, 80% of them, are caused by viruses. And viruses can only grow if they infect one of our cells, get inside the cell, and turn it into a virus factory. And then each cell pumps out thousands of new viruses, and they jump onto the cells next door, and you get this big area of inflammation. The inflammation causes all the blood vessels locally to get leaky and swell up and the immune system rushes in and this causes more swelling. This narrows the airways and this is why you get a sensation of a blocked nose because you've got this swelling. It's not just mucus. But the increased blood flow through the area because of these opened up blood vessels means you do make more mucus in your nose. Now that obviously all accumulates in the sinuses and the idea of it is that it acts as a filter. Any virus particles that you produce get stuck in it, other things you breathe in get stuck in it and then you blow them out and this is how your body rids itself of nasties. The system shouldn't really go wrong, but occasionally there are some conditions that mean that it can. I'm not saying you've got one of them because uh, most of the conditions that mean it goes wrong 
go means it, it's wrong from the time at which you're born. But there are some things you can acquire which can cause problems, and that's why I'm saying it's probably better to go and see someone about it because uh, it's a bit dangerous for me to give you a diagnosis without seeing you, if you see what I mean. Yeah. My doctor did think it might be a polyp or something. That's right, and that's one of the things I mentioned when you said when I mentioned things you can acquire because the mucus that comes out of the sinuses flows back into the nose cavity through very tiny holes and mm. uh, sometimes you can get a little localised proliferation or growth of cells in the area adjacent to one of these holes and this can flop over and block the hole and it means that the mucus can't escape or it has more trouble getting out and it builds up and that's why you have these problems and someone can have a look up the nose and see if they're there. Yeah, probably find it's all vacant. <laughs> ah, well, it depends how far they look. They're not going to look into your brain, I hope. Thanks for your oh, call, Al. They look right through. <laughs> OK. Good to talk to you. Thank you, bye. Take care now. Phil, what have you got? We've got a quick question here. Again, actually, on a similar sort of theory, actually. Uh, hi, Naked Scientists. I was actually wondering, why does my nose go runny when I cry? That's from Chris in Australia. Oh, a bit of nasal anatomy. Uh, the reason is that when you make tears, tears come from the lacrimal gland, which is on the upper outer part of your eye and the tears run down a tiny duct into the eye. They run across the eye to the middle of your lower eyelid. If you, if you follow your lower eyelid to where it meets your nose, you'll see there's this very tiny black dot, and that's the punctum, and oh, yeah. that's, the, that's almost like the plug hole for okay. your eye. And the tears drain in there, and they go down your uh, nasolacrimal duct, which is the duct that carries the tears from the eye into your nose, because all tears go into the nose. So when you cry, you just make an excess of tears, which means you've got more water going down that plug hole into your nose, and that's why your nose runs, because so it just mixes with the snot that's already there so and makes it runny. You know, it's like a drain pipe then, basically. Like uh, the tears I suppose you could say that, yeah. Uh, this one for you, Phil. Um, this is David. He's in Melbourne, Australia, actually. He says, I love the show. I listened to it on the train to work and back. Keep up the good work. I went on a hot air balloon trip last month, and the guy who was flying us said that if you lit a can while you were while the balloon was flying the air wouldn't make the flame flicker because the balloon is flying at the same speed as the air is this true what if there were winds from two different directions would the candle flicker then well it's not quite true i mean the you're right that the balloon does fly along with the air currents um, but if you get a sudden small gust uh, because the balloon's quite big and massive it would take a small amount of time to actually catch up with the winds as it were um, and the candle would flicker much easier, much more easily than the balloon moves. So if you get a sudden gust, the candle would flicker and then the balloon would catch up afterwards. OK, I think that's, that's fair enough, isn't it? Because the balloon's got inertia. So, exactly. And you, get, you can't say there's only going to be wind in one direction. We, we've seen breezes coming from multiple directions all the time. Absolutely true. Right, well, it's time for this week's Kitchen Science. And earlier this week, we sent Ben and Dave off to Parkside Community College and we armed them with a lemonade bottle. Hi, Ben. Hello, welcome to Kitchen Science. We've come to Parkside Community College today and I'm, of course, with Dave Ansell. Hi, Ben. And I'm with Jack and Nikesh. Hi, hello. And Dave told me today that we're making a camera out of a lemonade bottle. Now, I've seen pinhole cameras made out of cardboard boxes, but what do we need to do this? Well, for this, you need just a normal two-litre lemonade bottle, a pair of scissors and a little bit of water and ideally some interesting lights on the ceiling. OK, so you need an empty two-litre lemonade bottle, so drink the lemonade first, not too quickly, it'll make you burp, and then we need to cut it up and do something with water and then looking at interesting lights. I still don't get where we're going with this, Dave. OK, so the first thing we want to do is cut a circle out of the top of the lemonade bottle, just below the neck. So the... So the curved bit just below the top of the bottle? Yeah, the bit where it's curving in two directions at the same time. You want to cut a circle out of that. Nikesh, if you'd like to try and do that, be careful with the scissors, don't stab yourself. OK, I'm just poking the scissors through. And just cutting through. 
go. Now, as well as being careful with the scissors, of course, you should be careful with the bit of plastic you've cut off because these edges can be quite sharp, can't they, do? They can be, so, yeah, don't stab yourself with it. OK, so we now have a little bowl-shaped piece of transparent plastic. It looks like a massive contact lens. What are we going to do next? Well, what we're going to want you to do at home is just pour a little bit of water into this, hold it under a light, and then get a piece of white paper underneath it and just move it up and down and see what you can see on the paper. What do you think is going to happen? I really don't have a clue what's going to happen, so I just hope to see and find out. So if you want to try this out at home, cut yourself a circle out of the curved bit at the top of a plastic bottle. should look a bit like a contact lens. And then put in just a few drops of water, hold it up to a light, put a piece of paper underneath and see what you can see. Call in and let us know what happens. And we'll be finding out from Ben, Dave and Nikesh what they saw later on in the programme. If you want to have a go, or you want to have a go and see what happens, then you can let us know, tell us your results. Email chris at nakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist Podcast, brought to you by thenakedscientist.com. It's The Naked Scientist with Dr Chris and Dr Phil, and it's our science Q&A programme. Any question goes, you just have to call in and ask us a question. Here's one for you, Phil. It's from Tim and Hunter DiGennaro. They said, Dear Chris, my first grade son and I listened to your show, and we were hoping you would answer a quick question for us. Why do towels absorb the water off your body after a bath or shower? Okay, well, towels are basically made out of lots of fluffy fibres with a really large surface area. And as you rub the towel over your body, the the water droplets stick to those outsides of those fibres. And because there's so many of them in such a large surface area, you can get loads and loads of water stuck to a towel and not a lot stuck to yourself. Because the water's got really strong surface tension. Absolutely. Each little droplets which locks them onto the fibres on the surface of the towel. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. One here for you, Chris, from... Richard, uh, in Canada, actually, and he says, I really enjoy the show, listen every week while working in the lab in Montreal. A uh, question occurred to me the other day walking to school, wondering how much heavier deciduous trees get in the summertime relative to winter when they don't have any leaves on. I would say, I was thinking about this, I don't think it's very much heavier relative well, to the weight of the tree, I don't think it is. Um, if you look at how many leaves there are on a big tree, and I know this, I looked this up because I don't know how many leaves there are on a big tree, and the last res- review I could find was 1970-something, and someone did actually do a count. Okay. 48-foot maple tree, 177,000 leaves. It's a lot right? of leaves. It's, it's a lot, of, it's a sixth, the, the air surface area of that's a sixth of a hectare, a sixth of an acre, so it's a lot of leaf area that it's presenting to the sun. Now, the average weight of a leaf is between one gram and five grams for a big leaf, like a horse chestnut. Okay. So, if you assume that there's about 200,000 leaves on a tree, and you times it by five, that's a million a million grams well there's a thousand grams in a kilo so that's a thousand kilos or one ton so all the leaves on the tree together weigh about one ton which is about the same as a small cow isn't it small family cows it's about the size of a car it's not a huge weight given that the the wood of the tree weighs a hell of a lot more than that does absolutely so uh, and i think that the the big problem that leaves pose is their surface area because they trap wind and this means the wind exerts a big force on the tree, and it's actually the wind effect rather than the physical weight of the leaves that makes the big difference. Absolutely, and that's one of the reasons why they lose the leaves in the winter, so that they can avoid being blown over by the winter storms. Now, now talking about the winter time, it feels like we're in winter here in the middle of allegedly summer in the UK. So we thought we'd invite John Law from WeatherQuest to join us and explain. It's not his fault, we won't blame the weatherman, but explain why it is we're having such a freaky summer and why there are people living in a new island of Tewkesbury in the middle of the UK. Hello, John. Hello there, Chris. Hi, Phil. Hi. Good, good to have you on the programme again, John. Um, so tell us, what's contributing to these freaky weather f- conditions that we've seen so far this year? Well, the biggest thing is that we've seen all these low pressures a lot further south than we normally get this time of year. They're, they're driven by, mainly by the jet stream, which is a, a really 
uh, fast-moving area of uh, wind that flows across the atmosphere. And it's a lot further south this year than we normally expect to see it. And it's the real driving force between these low-pressure systems. And they come a lot further south, and they run right across our country, uh, our country as opposed to being a lot further to the north. So I think that's where the, most of this rain is coming from. So why should a low-pressure system trigger us to have rain in the first place? That's a good question. As a low-pressure system, a lot of air converges into one place, and as the air rises, it produces the clouds, and the clouds bring with it the rain. And at this time of year as well, with the temperatures a little bit warmer than you normally see in the wintertime, there's a lot more moisture around and a lot more energy available to give that rain across us. So it's all to do with the fact that the air is uh, all very unsettled and uh, very easy to, for, to produce that rain. So do we know why the jet stream is doing this unusual thing? Because I, I'm not that old, but I've been around for a little while and I've never seen a summer like this. No, by far and away, this is the, the wettest summer, um, wettest, wettest uh, three-month period, uh, May, June, July, we've seen since records began. So that was around back in the, the 1700s. So it really is a very wet period. But there is an awful lot of variation around in summer. If you remember last year, it was very dry, very, very dry for June and July. But I think it is an awful lot of uh, natural variation. So it just depends on where the atmosphere is working and, and how it all works at this time of year. What do you think is going to happen Next month. Uh, I know there's a hard question, even for a weatherman, but are we going to see a, a late summer? Is, is summer going to blossom in future or are we basically committed to going into winter having been acclimatised very well to it now because we've got winter temperatures already? It's uh, very hard to say what's going to happen next month. Longer range forecasts are exceptionally hard to, to do. And at the moment, it looks like things are definitely set to improve for the next week or so. The area of high pressure looks more set across us. So some fine, dry and settled weather coming through for at least for the next week or so down in the southern parts of the country. But at the moment, it looks like things are settling down just a little bit. You talked about clouds earlier just briefly. Uh, Ignatio actually dropped us an email from Spain. He says, Hi, I've read that high-level clouds are primarily composed of ice crystals and middle-level clouds pro- primarily water droplets. Uh, the question is, how are the ice crystals and the uh, water droplets actually held up in the clouds at a constant height if ice and water is actually denser than air? Why does it not fall down? Well, that's it, because the, uh, the, the, dro- the droplets in clouds are incredibly small things, uh, diameters of around about ooh, uh, t- uh, 20 uh, micrometres, uh, 0.02 millimetres, so really very small things. So it only takes a very small updraft to keep those, clouds, uh, those cloud droplets suspended in the atmosphere. And so when does the cloud, uh, how does the cloud decide to drop the rain? Just just you need a, a reduction in that updraft? Exactly, the, the reduction in the updraft, but also those cloud droplets need to get a lot bigger. Uh, a rain droplet, for example, is at a diameter of around about two millimetres, so that's around about a million cloud droplets. So you need to have those droplets to get bigger and bigger and bigger, and so it's caused by the uh, collision and coalition of those cloud droplets together. And once they get big enough to overcome that updraft, that's when they start to fall down. Bit of an unfair question, John, but we've weighed a tree in the last 10 minutes. Can you, how much does a rain cloud weigh, a big one? Oh, that is a very good question. Um, I don't know, but if you think about uh, the water bottles that you use to fill up a, uh, uh, on the, uh, in the drinking containers in the office here, and how heavy that is, and think about the, size, the amount of moisture in a, in a cloud, that'd be a good question. Mm. Must be something like 50,000 tonnes or it something. It would be very heavy. Yeah. I think so. I've got a question here from Tim Clark. He says, We know that the moon exerts impressive influences on large bodies of water like the sea and makes tides. So does the moon exert any influence on cloud formation and movement? I don't think it exerts anything on individual clouds. Now, the atmosphere behaves very much like a fluid, so there is always the, uh, the chance there of getting some kind of uh, waves, very small waves set up in the atmosphere, which may affect uh, atmospheric pressure from time to time. But actually, on individual clouds, I don't think it would affect that much of a difference. Okay, well, David is in Ellsworth. He's on the phone. Hello, David. Hello there. You would you have a question about droughts for John? Yes. Um, as there's not in our area, of course, just at the moment, but around in the world, there's, there seems to be a lot of droughts. So, is the world actually running out of water? 
That's a good question, Dave. As, as we've seen down in the southern parts of uh, Europe at the moment, right across uh, Greece, uh, Italy and Turkey, it's been incredibly uh, hot weather, very dry weather, and it's caused all sorts of problems down there. But I think generally the uh, Earth as a whole is a very closed system, and so the amount of water available doesn't actually change that much. It just uh, it goes through the water cycle and uh, exists in various forms, so in the sea, and uh, it just rains in very different parts of the world. So I think the world as a whole, the budget probably works out to be staying pretty constant throughout. Hmm. So, so why, why don't we manage it better? We've got all these places without water and all these places with too much. That's a very good question, but getting it to rain where you want it to is a very hard thing, and it's a very indirect science at the moment. So I think it's a case of a, a, where, where the rain is and where the water is isn't always where it's needed. No, that's what I mean. You know, I mean, it's not rocket science to put a plastic pipe in the ground and pump water through. So why, why don't we do more of that? You know, we've got, got all these big deserts that we could make use of if we had water there. Good question, good question. But I think it would take an awful lot of water to start uh, producing uh, something more useful in the, in the desert areas. So it's a case of, but it's uh, an awful lot of politics more than anything else and uh, getting the water to the right places. David, thank you very much. So, John, uh, thank you for joining us to, to brush up on what's causing all this freaky weather. Um, I guess the final question is that, that everyone's going to be wondering is, are we seeing a manifestation of global warming in driving this really freaky weather we've had here in the UK this month? It's a, obviously it's one of those questions where you can never attribute one effect and one one outcome to to global warming itself. And actually, at the moment, the, the current suggestions are that summers should actually get a lot drier as we head through into the uh, the, uh, the future. As the current predictions are to be true, so it is looking like things could be a lot very uh, a lot more different in the future. But I think generally at the moment it is just a natural variability, and it's just a very unfortunate, very wet summer so far. Thanks very much. That's uh, John Law. He is from WeatherQuest, and I guess the outlook is bleak. Sorting out the sparks from the quarks, the Naked Scientists. Tis the Naked Scientists with Dr Chris and Dr Phillips, our science phone-in show. If you'd like to ask us any questions, email chris at nakedscientists.com. Got an email here from uh, Sasha Quadrelli, who's actually listening in Sao Paulo in Brazil. And he says, hey guys, great show. I listen to it avidly on your podcast every week. There's something to add to a point you made in your last programme, if I could be so bold. Someone was asking about the point of preheating an oven. Now this was, I think, David in Northampton sent this question in. He said, why do we bother preheating an oven? Why don't you just sling the food in? It saves energy because then you're cooking the food from the minute the oven's turned on. Well, what, uh, Sasha, what Sasha says is, there's little more to it. He says uh, it's to do with the safe cooking of food and uh, you want to make sure the oven's nice and hot so that you can control the, make sure the food gets to the right temperature to kill all the bugs. But he says there's a bit more to it than that according to the theory of my chef's training. This can be best described by means of an analogy. Imagine if you sat in a metal room while someone lit a fire under it. Not a pleasant prospect, but the room would heat up slowly and you would begin to sweat, and all the liquid in your body would be drawn out until you were completely dehydrated. Of course, by the end of it, you'd be long dead, and you certainly wouldn't be very tasty either. Now, imagine that you were sitting in a heat-proof room and someone lit a large fire outside the door. Then, imagine you left the room and stepped directly into the blazing inferno. You'd be instantly charbroiled burnt on the outside but all the liquid would be sealed inside your body so you'd be cooked just in the like in the, a lot better than the first scenario but you'd be much juicier and tastier so the concept is the same for ovens if you put for example a leg of lamb in a cold oven and turn it on it will sweat out all its juices and you'll be left with something rather sad resembling the sole of your shoe whereas if you preheat the oven more of those juices will be locked inside and this results in a much more edible meal of course it, it won't be like the blazing inferno but the effect will be closer to it than the cold oven and that's sometimes why we fry meat in a very hot frying pan preheated of course before putting it in the oven and that seals more of the juices in there pretty cool very clever uh, another quick question here for you chris 
again, we're back to medical sort of uh, questions. If someone gets an organ transplant, like a kidney, will the transplanted organ cells be eventually replaced by the transplantee's own cells? And if so, how long does this take? Uh, the answer is no, they definitely won't. And that's why you do the transplant in the first place. And if, if we look at cystic fibrosis as a really good example of this, when you are suffering with cystic fibrosis, let's just focus on the lungs because it does have other effects, but in the lungs you can't make the right iron channel. This is a little pore on the surface of the, of the lung cells that lets the right amount of ions go in and out of the cells and this means that the mucus you make in the lung becomes very thick and sticky so you can't clear the mucus out properly. The way you cure cystic fibrosis from a chest point of view when things get really bad is you take out the diseased lungs and you take lungs from a donor who's healthy, hasn't got cystic fibrosis, and you put them in. And the person then doesn't have cystic fibrosis in their lungs anymore. And the reason is that the donor lungs have a healthy copy of the CF gene in the stem cells that are making the layers of cells that line those lungs. And because the stem cell has the correct gene in it, all of the cells in that graft then do the job that the person rest of the person's body doesn't have the gene that can d to do so that means the donor gets a health sorry the recipient gets a healthy set of working lungs if you replaced the cells in there with the person's own tissue again then they would have an unhealthy copy of the gene again and they would have cystic fibrosis again so that's why you do a transplant okay excellent now, I've got a bit of a confession to make actually um, last week we had a really interesting question I think it was Alexander in Germany and he said, when I turn my electric toothbrush on and I'm watching television, uh, the, the picture goes wobbly. Now, I misunderstood the question and I thought he meant that he was seeing sort of interference on the screen because obviously when you run an electric motor, it does give out electromagnetic radiation, uh, radio waves, that kind of thing, and this can disturb the picture because I see this at home when I do stuff like this. Uh, and Helen pointed out, actually, what about vibration to the head? And we've had quite a lot of emails in. Uh, Nan wrote to me. Also, Chris Murray, who's listening in County Wicklow in Ireland, has written in. This is quite funny. He says, um, yeah, I liked Helen's explanation better than yours about why the television picture shakes while using an electric toothbrush. Uh, I say this because eating a biscuit produces the same effect, as long as it's a cathode ray tube some distance away. I had fun at work some years ago when a colleague noticed her computer screen shaking whenever she bit her biscuit. Of course, only she saw it shake, but I complained that she was stopping me from doing any work by eating her biscuit. She proved to herself that she was responsible because it coincided exactly with every bite, even when no one else could tell her when she was biting. Thank you very much for the podcast edition of your programme. So I'm sorry I um, kind of forgot to make that very important point and I misinterpreted that email, but uh, yes, it's because the vibrations inside your head at the same time as um, you're eating mean that your eyes get jolted a little bit and when you've got a television picture which is updating very very fast what will happen is that your eyes move very very slightly between the updates of the screen and so you get a slightly different picture on your on your retina and this is why the image appears to jump or shake actually i got a very similar effect the other day brushing my teeth in a hotel room watching the uh, the clock was it a radio the, the radio clock yeah, yeah and it yeah. was the same effect the, the digits LCD. suddenly all skewed themselves yeah, they, they flick on and off very very fast too fast for your eye to normally see there we go Quick one for you, Phil. Uh, this is a really lovely question. Uh, Adam Haynes, who's in Australia, he says, I've got a question with regard to the Kuiper belt object, which was discussed in your show dated 18th March 2007. Um, the object, two, uh, 2003 EL61, is irregularly shaped, unlike the spherical planets in our solar system. The question is, if you were standing on the surface of this irregularly shaped object, would gravity vary depending upon where you were positioned? Um, essentially, yes, the quick answer is. Um, I mean, these things are irregularly shaped because they're quite low mass. The gravity is not enough to pull the rocks into a sphere. That's how you get big spherical planets. Um, and actually, um, this is an issue for 
Mars's moon uh, Charon. Uh, now Charon is actually going to be hopefully the target of a space mission, and the again it's irregularly shaped, it's quite small, and actually the gravity on there varies by about fifty percent depending on where you are on the surface. So it's actually a big implication for the mission that's going to hopefully go land on that moon. So if you were to land, where would it be best to land in order to make sure that you either didn't get pulverised or didn't get too lightly attached and floated off? Well, with something like something this small, the gravity is so weak that actually you want to land where there's the most gravity. Uh, and that's because otherwise you can literally just float off. Uh, the idea is that you probably have to tether yourself down with a harpoon or something, fire something into the rock or into the ice that makes up the body and actually hold yourself down. Uh, and otherwise you would literally just float away. Stephen's on the line. Um, Stephen, hello. Hello. You're in Cambridge. What would you yeah. like to talk about? Yeah, well, I had to, two energy-saving ideas bubbling around in my brain. Sounds good. One was uh, a solar-powered air conditioner. Not a solar-powered nightlight. That's a very good idea. Uh, and the other one was... No, what was the other one? Oh, yes, a vacuum-powered tumble dryer. Um, so the first one was, going back to my boyhood days, we used to have a mobile caravan and it had a gas-powered fridge. And I think it used to use small gas flame to heat some fluid, which presumably expanded and in doing so got quite cold. And it used to use that to power a fridge because um, there was no electricity in the uh, Yeah, sure. You heat the, the fluid, it goes through a very tiny nozzle and That's expands it. very fast. That's the expansion of the gas gets cold. The question is, can you use straight solar power to do exactly the same thing? So on hot days, would you have enough energy to make an air conditioning unit to cool your house down again? The answer is you can, and it was invented, I think, by a Scottishman. His name was Stirling. It's called a Stirling Engine, and they have built a massive power station based on this in Los Angeles. Ah. And the idea is it's going to generate megawatts of power. You focus, they've built this massive array of solar reflectors which will focus the sun's light onto a central machine which has a gas you usually use hydrogen surprisingly because it's got a very big coefficient of expansion expands a lot for not a lot of heat going in this means the gas expands with the heat the expansion drives a piston down and you then cool the gas it then contracts again and the piston comes back up Mm. and you can do this repetitively and it does work so yes the Mm. answer is you could do it with solar power would it solve greece's um air conditioning and electricity power supply problems i I think the answer is no because (laughs) if you look at how much energy we're consuming as a planet we're Mm. burning off enough resources to use three planet earths just uh, for us Um, so we did some simple calculations here on the naked scientists a couple of weeks ago and we had a program about fuels and uh we had the the answer that we came the conclusion we came to was if we if we turn the entire land area of the uk into just growing biofuels we would grow enough just to sustain our fuel needs without eating anything so Mm. the only people that might get away with it is the us because they have a massive land area and not that many people they've only got six times our population but a country which you could cram us into hundreds of times they might get away with it but on a world scale no sorry how about tumble dryer um, tumble dry, very, very big way to waste energy. Wonderful waste yeah, of energy. Now, now I was thinking, uh, obviously, one, you know, normally you just try to heat the water off. You just try and kind of evaporate it with sufficient heat. Could you put, supposing you put your wet clothes into a, a vacuum flask and sucked the air out? Yeah, wonderful idea. Because it would all boil, the, wouldn't it? It would boil off. Yeah, it's a great idea. But I asked Dr. Dave this, because he's a physicist, and I said, if we had a vacuum 
pump instead and we just vacuumed our tumble dryer contents, would yeah. this be more energy efficient? He said, no, probably not, because the, um, the added weight and the added engineering that would go into it and the added effort of running the pump would probably yeah. not be as energy efficient as just heating an element and drying the clothes the hard yeah. way. The best way to do it, of course, is your original solar idea, put them on this thing called a washing line. A washing That's line. very good. Yeah, yeah. or a washing <laughs> line with a, with a parabolic reflector or something like that. Yeah, if yeah. you could have an array of dishes around the base of the washing line, reflect the sun back onto the washing and have mm. a big, some kind of big solar-powered fan nearby to increase the airflow over the washing <laughs> on still days, that would be fabulous. And, of course, a massive umbrella to protect it from the rain we're having at the moment, uh, which actually, is causing a major that, problem. That's the most, that's the most uh, practical solution, is, is, a, is, a, is a tree in the right place, <laughs> such that the, 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 the tree is to the north of the washing line, and when it rains, if, it's not, if, the, if the wind isn't too, too fast, if the rain comes vertically and doesn't make the washing wet. So you can get sun coming down at an angle and, and rain coming down vertically is protected from Or you could just be like the people at Glastonbury and uh, never wash and never do any washing because you just bath in mud. Stephen, thank you very, very much for joining us. Right, we have to move on. It's the Naked Scientist, Dr Chris and Dr Phil, and it's time to catch up with this week's chemistry update, this month's chemistry update, I should say, with uh, Mark Pepler. He's the editor of Chemistry World. He's from the Royal Society of Chemistry. They're based in Cambridge. Hi, Mark. Hello, Chris. Now, exciting news this month. Got a whole range of things, but we've been talking about pollution and stuff and how to be clean, and clean coal is on the agenda. That's right. Um, uh, this is a group of scientists in China that have been developing a way, which is essentially a way of extracting energy from coal without actually having to dig it out of the ground. Uh, now, it's, it's based on technology that's been around uh, for more than a century. It, it's the same idea that uh, the Victorians used uh, to turn coal into coal gas for their gas lamps. Um, essentially, what's been happening in this, in this Chinese pilot trial um, is to take a coal seam and to drill down into it and by blowing first air and then steam into it, um, once the coal seam is ignited, this essentially partly burns and out of the other end of the coal seam, there's another pipe, through that pipe runs something called syngas. It's a mixture of carbon dioxide and hydrogen. Not S-I-N. Uh, no, <laughs> uh, no, absolutely not. So this syngas, uh, carbon monoxide and hydrogen, if you like, it's sort of half-burned coal. Um, and this can be turned into a variety of liquid fuels using uh, technology that was developed in Germany called the Fischer-Tropsch process. So you don't have to dig loads and loads of rock and blast things, put people at risk. You can actually get small amounts of, of energy out on demand locally. That's right. Previously, people had investigated this in the 1960s, but the only way they could make it work was actually to send miners down and effectively create like a, like a reaction vessel inside the coal chamber by digging out a big cavern. Um, effectively, with this method, because they're very carefully controlling the blast of heat and air, um, they're able to burrow their own pipe through the coal seam, which is about half a metre wide, uh, and that completely removes the need for anybody to actually go down there. Now, with 5,000 miners a year dying in accidents in China, for example, from coal mining accidents, um, that's clearly going to make a big difference. How do you make sure the gas doesn't come out in the wrong place? Because you're saying you, you fire this hot gas and steam along the coal seam and then collect the products. Well, what stops them diffusing out and appearing, I don't know, in someone else's garden or something, rather than up your pipe that you need them to come into your power station? This is partly about the way that some coal seams are laid down. Uh, very often the, the rock around them won't allow much gas to escape. So it's partly, it will only escape where there is a clear hole drilled in 
into it at the other end. It's, it's not suitable for all coal seams, but crucially, it can access some seams that previously you wouldn't have been able to mine at all. So potentially you're getting more energy out of the, out of the ground than you would otherwise have been able to dig out. It's amazing to think, Mark, that you have brought technology from 100 years ago to bear today. But sticking with the gas story, what's this about goats and helping us to have a line of defence against nerve gases? Yeah, that's right. Um, a, uh, a research company called Farm Athene, uh, based in Montreal in Canada, have genetically modified uh, a herd of goats to actually produce a protective enzyme in their milk. Um, this is an enzyme that can basically uh, chew up organophosphorus compounds, like, for example, sarin that was used in the, uh, the Tokyo subway attacks in 1995. So this enzyme is called butyrylcholinesterase, um, and out of their herd of goats, they've managed to uh, engineer them in such a way that they produce about five grams of this antidote in every litre of milk. They, they've already stockpiled about 15 kilos of this enzyme. Oh, so, OK, so you get the milk, you can purify this enzyme out of the milk, and then, what, you would inject it into someone who'd been exposed to something nasty? That's right. We, we spoke to a researcher called Patrick Masson, uh, based uh, in France at the Military Health Service Research Centre, uh, and he told us that um, essentially a dose of about 200 milligrams of enzyme uh, can protect humans up to about five times the lethal dose of something like VX or sarin. Or even sheep dip, because of course the same organophosphates have been implicated in Gulf War syndrome and farmers having things like Gulf War syndrome because of dipping sheep, isn't it? That's right. Um, uh, organophosphorus compounds are used in sheep dip because it can kill uh, the insects, um, which can cause uh, problems, diseases in sheep. Um, the OP sheep dips, uh, unfortunately, also have been implicated, as you said, in something called dipper's flu. And this is supposedly through an accumulation of these organophosphorus compounds in farmers' bodies that haven't had proper uh, respiratory protection when they're using the sheep dip. Thank you very much, Mark. That's Mark Peplow. He's the editor of Chemistry World, the magazine of the Royal Society of Chemistry. And you can find out more about those stories and others on his website, which is chemistryworld.org. And now it's time to join Diana O'Carroll for this week's Question of the Week. Hello and welcome to Question of the Week. This week we'll be looking at how the movement of Magnetic North could change our lives. Carl from Australia asked... What would happen to human civilization if the Earth's magnetic poles flipped tomorrow? Thanks. So what kinds of problems can we expect... The ramifications may be more than just a few lost ramblers. Our expert this week is Dr Peter Friend of the Earth Sciences Department at the University of Cambridge. We have no direct observational evidence on what is likely to occur the next time the magnetic polarity of the Earth flips or reverses. The last time was three quarters of a million years ago and typical average frequency of these reversals over the last few million years has been about a quarter of a million years, so perhaps we are due one soon. All the expectation would be that the reversal happens rather gradually over hundreds to thousands of years and would involve a gradual weakening of the magnetic field before it again became stronger with the opposite polarity. However, experiments on complex turbulence of a liquid iron core inside a spinning Earth suggest that the field might not drop to zero, but might change to a rather more complicated multipole pattern um, during a reversal. If a reversal started to happen tomorrow, it would be centuries before we would notice instrumental effects, and technology would have to adapt as best it could. Uh, the magnetic field of the Earth is known to act as a shield against many forms of cosmic radiation particles. Geological evidence from fossils does not support the idea that this might 
have caused major disruption to living organisms in the past. So this supports the idea that the field would not drop completely to zero but would stay at a, a low level um, but one that was strong enough to stop, for instance, uh, cancer-producing radiation. So the Earth's poles aren't going to change instantaneously, and the likelihood is that we won't be lightly toasted in the solar radiation. But what if the poles did flip overnight? With planes and ships preferring GPS, inertial navigation systems and radio beacons, it looks like humans won't be getting too lost very soon. But what about migratory species? Here's our expert on birds and bats to explain. My name is Richard Holland. I'm a postdoctoral researcher at Princeton University. I work on navigation in animals, in particular bats and birds. And both these animals are known now for their ability to use the Earth's magnetic field as a compass. They can use it to tell them which way they need to fly. If they need to fly north, then they can check the Earth's magnetic field. But they're actually not solely reliant on the Earth's magnetic field for their directional information. And we actually know that the cue that both bats and birds trust the most is the direction in which the sun sets. So although many migrating bats and birds fly at night, they calibrate the Earth's magnetic field with the setting sun. So if the sun sets in the west, they look at which direction the Earth's magnetic field is pointing, and that gives them an indication of where magnetic north is and also where true north is. So if the Earth's magnetic field were to flip, it wouldn't actually fool either bats or birds because they would have calibrated it with true north according to the sunset. Next week we'll be navigating brains with Neil's question on octopuses. Does an octopus have one motor cortex with eight divisions, one for each arm, or just one brain to control them all? And Linda from Harrogate wants to know about lifts. Say a lift breaks and the car falls to the ground. If you jump up right before the car makes contact with the ground, so you would be in the air when the lift hits the ground, would you still land as hard as you would if you didn't jump at all? Do you know the answer to either of these? Send your thoughts to question of the week at thenakedscientist.com. See you next time on Question of the Week. Back to the studio. Thanks, Diana. So if you find yourself unfortunately caught in a falling lift, would it save you to jump just before the lift hits the bottom? How would you know when to jump? Let us know at question of the week at thenakedscientists.com. Here's Dr Chris and Dr Phil with this week's Naked Scientist. If you have any science questions for us, email chris at nakedscientist.com. Laying the facts bare, the Naked Scientists. Now, we asked you earlier if you would like to make your very own lens, and we sent Ben and Dave and Akeem out to uh, Parkside Community College where they were chopping up uh, plastic lemonade bottles with pairs of scissors and adding water to them. So let's find out how they got on. Hello again. Welcome back to Kitchen Science. We're still at Parkside Community College in Cambridge. I'm still with Jack Nikesh and Dave Ansell, and we've got a small piece of plastic that was cut out of a lemonade bottle. looks like a really big contact lens. It's the curved bit around the top. And Dave, you said we're going to make a camera at the moment this looks like a bit of plastic. What's next? So Makesh is holding the lens very gently and now I want Jack to pour a little bit of water in to sort of fill it half full of water. So we don't want it overflowing, we just want it just half full of water? Yeah, otherwise you just make a mess on the floor. Okay then, I'm just pouring the water slowly into contact lens to halfway. That looks good. It still looks like a contact lens but now it's, it's got a few drops of water in there. It's quite close to overflowing actually but hopefully we'll get something from it anyway. What, what do we have to do now? Now I want Mikesh to hold it so it isn't bending it at all so try and hold it very gently. 
You want to hold it to try and make the water as circular as possible. Whilst at the same time trying not to spill water everywhere. That would be ideal. <laughs> but you also want to hold it so as the light can get into it quite easily. So you want to hold it very carefully so the water stays circular and you can hold it up towards the light without obscuring the light that's hitting it. Now I've got a piece of paper on the floor here just to make things more interesting because the floor is directly below the light. So if we can come down to this piece of paper. OK, well we're only about a foot off the ground now and Dave's got a few white pieces of paper. Come down gently, up a bit. Can you see what we're starting to get a picture of on the floor? Yeah, uh, it's the light above us. Yeah, you can see the light fitting that's above us um, on the piece of paper. So as well as seeing the shadow of your hand, Dave, we seem to be seeing a projected image of the light above us. Yeah, just like you get inside a camera. What we've actually made with the water inside this piece of plastic is a lens. Now, a lens is a very specially shaped transparent thing. If light hits something like water at an angle, it tends to slow down a bit. And that also tends to bend it in towards the water. And when it leaves, it tends to bend away from it. This means that things like water or glass can distort light. Now, a lens is a very special shape, which means that all the light from one point above it, so like one point on the light fitting, will appear at one point below it on the piece of paper. So if you imagine all, and all the different points in the light fitting which are glowing and giving out light will get focused into different places on the paper and build up an image. And so you get an image of the light fitting on the paper. So the shape of the lens affects whereabouts on the paper the light from above gets focused. And if it's the right shape, then it actually focuses in the same pattern as it's coming from the original source. And so it, it's an image rather than just a light. If I bend the plastic too much in one direction, that means that the light's never all going to focus in the same point. So you get a very, very fuzzy image, which isn't nearly as good. So it really is like a contact lens because we're using it to focus light. Yeah, that's right. In fact, your eye works in a very similar way. If you look at the front, you have the cornea, which is very curved, just the same sort of shape as a piece of plastic, and it's got water and jelly-like stuff behind it. So light comes in from outside and gets focused onto the back of your eye, called the retina, which then detects when it has light on it and sends signals back to your brain to tell your brain that you've seen something. And we need to wear contact lenses when our eyes can't focus that light as well as it should ourselves. So by putting a lens in front of our eyes, it allows the light to focus properly. Yeah, that's right. It's actually just changing the shape of your cornea to the right shape so as the light will focus on the back of your eyes. Fantastic. Well, did you think you'd be making a lens out of water today? No, I didn't. I didn't really have any idea what was going to happen. It was quite amazing what happened. No, but it was lots of fun. So do you think you'd be showing your friends how to make a lens out of water and plastic? Yeah, I could probably do it because party coming up, you know, a little party trick to do. OK, well, I hope at home you were able to make an image of whatever light was above you using just a piece of plastic and a small amount of water, and hopefully you didn't spill any on the carpet. So that's it from Parkside Community College today. That's all from Dave Ansell. Goodbye. And it's all from Jack and Nikesh. Bye. Bye. And it's all from me. Back to the studio. Thanks, Ben. So you can make a lens using only a small circle cut out of a plastic bottle and a small amount of water. Fantastic. For more experiments you can try out at home, visit www.thenakedscientists.com slash kitchen science. Thank you very much. Uh, now, um, let's go to Paul. He's in Cherry Hinton. Hi, Paul. Hi there, Chris. You've got a question for us. Yeah, I have um, what I think is a, an unusual form of um, synesthesia. Tell me more. In that um, I relate um, musical keys, uh, musical notes, to taste. Wow. I can as in taste them. You, you get a flavour in your mouth when you yeah. hear a certain music. So tell us about that. What things trigger what? Well, it's like if I hear something in, in the key of G... It, it, I, it's a fruity taste. It's um, or like beer, which is slightly bitter. It goes into a, 
a G minor. Is there a difference between minor... Yeah, so, so minor keys and major keys give you different flavour sensations. Yeah. That's excellent. There is actually someone who has perfect pitch, and they were studied scientifically recently and written up in the journal Science, and it was a lady who did exactly what you're describing and had, and had this amazing taste for music yeah. in that she knew when a note was right because it tasted right. That's right. Well, I can hear when they're right, because I have perfect pitch as well, so I can hear yep. when they're right anyway, but I get a taste, you know, like a, um, like a note C or the key of C. It's, yep. it's like cake or something Fantastic. Sweet. Have you always had this since you were born? Yeah, and I was born, I was born blind, yep. so I don't know whether that has anything anything to do with it. I don't think so, but what I would um, be interested in is if you have any relatives and who you know well and if they have it too, because we know synesthesia and this kind of thing runs in families. All right. Do you have any relatives that you could ask? Um, well, I'd be surprised if they had it, actually, um, to be honest. I, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? You normally know. But Yeah, I, I wouldn't think so. It's something I haven't really discussed until a few years ago till I actually heard about synesthesia and then yeah. I realised that I've, You've got got it. A, I've got a form of <laughs> this that I've had ever since I was very... Well, old enough to realise you had it, but it's uh, synesthesia. The word means mixing of the senses, and yeah. it's very common. Um, when I say very common, I mean it's not. You're not one in a billion. It's actually more common than we think. And you just ask people, and they'll they'll say they have this kind of thing. Some people can taste shapes bizarrely. You know, show them a shape, show them a circle, and it has a different flavour mm. in their mouth to a triangle, for example. It's very mm. strange. Um, we think it's because in the brain there are some nerve fibres that go, as well as going to the part of the brain that says, "I am now hearing this note." They also sort of take a detour and tell another part of the brain that normally processes taste, ah, this flavour. And so you get this linking of a particular stimulus, in your case a musical note, which you hear as well, with experiencing a flavour. So it's like an unnecessary email message you yeah. might get at work or it's something. Like, yeah, I suppose it's like neurological really spam, need, isn't it? You get it, yeah. <laughs> Neurospam, I never thought of it like that. But thank you for sharing that, it's a wonderful experience and it's certainly a synesthesia. Mm. Good to have you on, Paul. Oh, thanks, Chris. Thank you, take yeah. care. Bye. Bye-bye. Well, we're nearly at the end. Phil, anything to sneak in in 20 seconds? One last, one last quick question for you here. Uh, a lightning strike only takes a few milliseconds to hit the ground and return, so why does the thunder last for four or five seconds? That's from Andrew Tony. Right. OK, the answer to this one is that the lightning superheats the air around the lightning bolt and it drives the air up to a temperature of about 30,000 degrees Celsius. Now, that's six times hotter than the surface of the sun, so it's pretty hot. And this causes a massive expansion of the air under the thermal expansion, and this causes a pressure wave to radiate out from the point where the lightning bolt is outwards. And so you get a ripple effect of all the molecules colliding with each other, and that's the thunder. But because this ripple effect spreads out, getting weaker as it does so from the point where the lightning went down, that's why you get an extended ripple of thunder that goes on for much longer than the original instantaneous almost lightning strike. Right, well, that's it for this week. Thank you very much for listening. Next time, we're going to be exploring nature's arsenal with a look at the world of poisons and toxins and venoms and uh, also how they can be put to use not just as weapons, but in practical terms for medicines and also for farming and other agricultural processes. We'll be hearing how cone shells on the barrier reef have given researchers a painkiller 10,000 times more potent than morphine, and also how a spider venom can be used to get rid of pests and bugs on fruit. It's also totally biodegradable, which is an added bonus. Anyway, if you'd like to ask any questions about that, the email address chris at nakedscientist.com or if you just want to say hi, we love hearing from you. 
Now, something very important. Thanks to everyone out there. You have managed to get us nominated in two categories in this year's podcast awards. So thank you very much. We've been nominated in Best Produced and also the Best Science and Technology Show category. But now it's got really serious because the only way we can win is if we get lots and lots of votes. And you can vote via the podcastawards.com site and you can vote once per day. And you need to vote for us in both categories. And it's very simple. You just click a link to us in both cases, and then you put your name and email address at the bottom. Uh, if you could help us out, we would be very, very grateful. Uh, there's a link to the podcast awards site at the, on our front page on acatantis.com. But if you want to go there directly, it's podcastawards.com. Well, that's it. That's it for this time. Thank you very much to our production team, Ben, Dave, and Petro, who put this week's show together. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.